Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's Word. Father, we ask you now that you would please pour out your Spirit on us and show us Christ. And in showing us Christ, we ask that you would show us the Father. We pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm struck by the first four words of verse 9. The first four words of verse 9. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only one to have a perfect prayer life full of satisfaction and communion and joy, whose prayers were always answered, the Lord Jesus Christ says, you pray then like this. I love that. Because I am not good at praying. I get distracted when I pray. I get drowsy. And that's an optimistic assessment. I get distracted. I get drowsy. I get discouraged. I leave times of prayer thinking I haven't prayed long enough or passionately enough or for enough people or for enough countries. So while I'm praying, I can have trouble sensing that God is pleased with my prayers. And then I read these words. Pray then like this. And I realized, what's the, what's the assumption of those words? Jesus is assuming my incompetence. He is assuming my inability to pray well. He thinks I need to be taught how to pray. And he's willing to teach me how to pray, which is why he says, pray then like this. And, and what I just, just in some initial observations of the Lord's Prayer, 
I find that Jesus relieves me of so many of my misconceptions of what good prayer is. Right? I mean, good prayer, if it's anything, is long. We tell stories of people who prayed long. Martin Luther said he prayed for three hours a day. There are Korean pastors this very day who pray eight hours a day. Psalm 119 is a prayer and it is long. And then you read this prayer and it's just over 50 words in English, less words in Greek, and just, just to look at it on a page. Okay, Lord of the universe, sum up your teaching on prayer. Look, look down, look at it. There it is. You could get that on one phone screen. It's just very short, simple, concise. Of course, long praying is not bad. Psalm 119 is in the Bible. Jesus prayed all night. But when you're talking about what is faithful prayer, what would you do if you'd been taught to pray by Jesus? It might get longer, but this is good, sufficient. I don't want to even say good enough because it, 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 would, it would make it sound like this is training wheels, but it's not. This is training wheels and this is the best bike you could ever own. This, this is the Lord's own teaching on prayer. And it's just surprisingly short. And I assume that good praying is not only long, but it's, it's poetic. I mean, you get with some Christians when they're praying, and you're like, man, you should be a battle rapper. I mean, you can do freestyle poetry when you pray. I mean, you just, you bow your head, and the words just flow, and the adjectives are all there. And this prayer is not, it's not particularly poetic. It's, it's quite simple. It's beautiful, but, but beautiful in its simplicity and not beautiful in its complexity. It's beautiful because it's profound, not beautiful because it's, it's complicated. So that, that's, quite, that's quite amazing to me, just the, that this prayer is not particularly poetic. I think prayers should be long. Jesus says, here's how you pray. It gives you something short. I think prayers should be poetic. Jesus says, here's something simple and profound. And then I tend to think that good prayer is always me overflowing with my passion. You ever found that you're praying to God, but what you've got your eye on is the temperature of your soul? Are you on fire? Are you passionate. And if you are, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good because I'm on fire. But this prayer is really not about my passion at all. This prayer actually assumes a fairly dismal state to my passions. It assumes that I need to pray that God's name would be hallowed because God's name is not particularly revered in my soul. It, 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 it actually assumes that I'm, I'm thinking about basic everyday things like what I'm going to eat next. And it, it considers those worthy 
of bringing to God. And so this passage, this passage is not particularly, the, the fuel of the Lord's Prayer is not my passion. But it's actually God's passion to answer these things. And the funny thing is, here's how this works, right? When you come to prayer looking primarily at your passions, guess what? You always get more and more discouraged. Because you keep taking a look, not, not awesome, not awesome. You get more discouraged each time you look. But the more you look at what God wants you to ask and what he's actually calling you to pray for, guess what ignites in your soul? A little real passion. Because you're focused on what he's promising. So here's what I wanted to start with. And it's, if we walk away with only this this morning, I'll, I'll be happy. Just a glance at Jesus' teaching on prayer, and I feel a sense of relief. This is not hard like leg day. This is not complex like rocket science. This is simply me going to my heavenly father and asking him to do what only he can do. And asking him for the things he already knows I need. I really hope that this morning I can give you a vision of prayer that's not a burden. Jesus said his commands were not burdensome. And yet most of us find prayer. And he says, my commands are not burdensome. And well, he meant it. I mean, he, he apparently thought that this central act of the Christian life ought not to be burdensome. It ought to be a relief. It ought to be rather simple. Like, almost like anyone could do it. Because the whole thing in prayer is not what you're doing, but what God can do. Prayer focuses us on simply looking to God for what He can do. And what you wind up with is a vision of prayer that's simple, doable, acceptable, and pleasurable to God. Now I want you to notice this in three ways. I want you to notice this in three ways. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is not expecting a lot of words in prayer. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is not expecting a lot of words in prayer. In fact, Jesus thinks a lot of words in prayer can be dangerous. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. You got guys setting the timer for 15 minutes, they pray the whole time, touchdown! But the whole thing depends on a view of God that assumes the primary thing he's looking for in prayer is for you to manipulate him and wear him down. This is toddler theology of prayer, right? Toddlers are amazing. They don't have any arguments. 
They just ask the same question over and over until you finally succumb. We had a brilliant toddler. I remember when Luke was three or four years old, he's sitting in a car seat behind me and he says, Dad, if you say McDonald's, you got to go to McDonald's. <laughs> and then he waited an appropriately clever amount of time and he said, say McDonald's. And it's an abracadabra view of prayer. If you just say the special word, just say the right thing, just say it enough times, just twist God's arm. And the whole vision of prayer is you know what's good and God is reluctant to give it. It's heresy. It's wickedness. It's a distortion. It's a blasphemous distortion of the character of God who is an abundantly generous, good giver. And the reality is you don't have a clue what's good for you. And he knows exactly what's good for you and wants to give it. So he's got to spoon feed you the questions you could ask him so that you'll get the right things. The whole assumption of biblical prayer is God knows what you need, you don't know what you need, and you don't need to do anything fancy to get it, you just need to ask. Now the honest truth is, for many of us, we heard a couple weeks ago a message, last time I was in the Lord's Prayer, or in this section, by the way, this week's message, last week's message from Pastor Jeff, thank you so much for the good word. So good, amen. Well, the last time I was in this passage, there was a sense of excitement of this whole idea of just go and be in secret, just be in secret. The foundational piece of our Christian lives is to be in secret with God. We heard it six times. Go be in secret. Your Father who hears in secret and sees in secret will reward you. That's exciting to hear about in a sermon, and then you go be in secret. And you're like, I'm, I'm not going to make it three hours. And I, I don't know who these Korean pastors are, but they're ruining it for all of us. And, and, and then, of course, there's the devil who loves to join you when you're in secret with his chorus of accusations and temptations. And so it turns out being in secret's not quite as good as it sounded unless you've had Jesus teach you how to pray. And unless you've had Jesus say to you, listen, I'm not looking for a ton of words. I'm not looking for you to go on and on. I, I, believe it or not, I'm aware of the headlines. Yes I, yes, I saw the news as well. This is the argument, right? Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what's going on. And he's just looking for his people to come before him in secret with simplicity and ask for their needs. Think about it. Book of Ecclesiastes says, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
quantity is not greater than quality. More isn't always better. Who knew that even in prayer, less could be more? And how doable is this in our busy lives? Just get a moment alone and pray the words Jesus taught you to pray. You know, we don't, one of the saddest parts is that right after Jesus says, don't just pile up words, we then have the prayer that many have used in the history of the church just to pile up words. You go for confession in the Catholic Church and you get told to say, X amount of our fathers and go through the rosary that's going to involve X amount of our fathers. And I have nothing wrong with praying this prayer over and over. This is my bread and butter prayer on a daily basis. But this prayer shouldn't be used in a mindless, empty way. It's, it's more of a guide. It's more showing you the focuses of what God wants prayed. And it's giving you the simplicity and the kind of guidance we need in prayer. So if your prayer life is too short, that might be okay. And it might be a false sense of guilt that's keeping you from joy in prayer. And I would actually suggest to you that the person who regularly prays short, meaningful prayers over the course of a lifetime is actually the person who will wind up writing an occasional Psalm 119 in their journal. Having the occasional all night of prayer when they need to. But the person who's expecting a marathon run out of every one of their prayers is the person I'm going to introduce you who's just worn out. Can't keep up the pace. Don't miss this. Look, just look in front of you. You can see it visually on the page. There's a point here that you can see in almost any Bible, okay? Pray then like this. Is that all? That's all. If it feels like I'm trying to say the same thing over and again and again and again, it's because I'm trying to say the same thing over again and again because I, I think this is a hard one to grasp. You follow me? Jesus is not expecting many words in our prayers. Go back to the story of Elijah and the uh, priests of Baal for a comparison in prayer lengths and their effectiveness. You might remember the story, Elijah and uh, the uh, priests of Baal are having a competition to show whose God is God. And the way they've set up the competition is they've set up two altars of wood and they've doused them both in water and the one that gets lit on fire from heaven, that's the one that belongs to God. It's a pretty amazing religious contest. It'd be awesome to have one of those today. It might change the tide of the culture we're in. So it's amazing you read this, and you can go back and read this for yourself. I'll read you some excerpts right now. 
But you go back and read this passage in 1 Kings 18, and it says the prophets of Baal prayed from morning till noon. Oh, they were giving it. Multi-hour long prayer. And then it says they picked up after lunch and kept praying. And they cut themselves, and they cried out, and they screamed. And when they finally asked for prayer for he from heaven, oh, God said, I, I better do something. I've just had my arm twisted right around. I mean, no. The Baals didn't answer. Jehovah didn't answer. Elijah's got that killer one-liner where he says, where's your God? In the bathroom? Like, what's, what's going on? He's asleep? That's right. And then Elijah lines up to pray, and here's what he prays. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Simple prayer, powerful response. This is not a teeter-totter. This is not a set of weights and measures. If you can produce one awesome prayer, you will get one awesome answer. This is not the way this works. This is not an equal relationship. This is not where you're saying, hey God, I'm gonna go in 50-50 with you. No, that is not what's happening. You provide one simple request and God is God. That's the kind of prayer life I could have. I could present myself to God in a secret place on a regular basis and ask the requests he's guided me in and then watch and see what he does. Now that's relieving. You could do that if you had too many kids. You could do that if you didn't have enough time. You could do that if your notifications were going off all the time with important projects and work. You could get a few minutes away and you could do that. You could take five minutes at lunch and do that. And it would make all the difference in the cosmos as God brought his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So first point, Jesus is not expecting you to pray with many words. Say that one to yourself again. He is not expecting me to pray with many words. Second point, he wants us to pray with God's people on our hearts. He wants us to pray with God's people on our hearts. No, 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 no. Get the picture here. He's given us instructions to go find a prayer closet you don't have to have a closet, but a private place, a secret place, somewhere where you're not being a public spectacle, you're supposed to go alone. John Wesley's mom had 19 kids, said that she just threw her apron over her head because that was the only alone place there was on the planet. That'll do. You're supposed to get somewhere alone, but now let me be very clear about this. 
Alone time is not me time when it comes to the Lord's Prayer. Alone time is not me time. Private prayer is not the pinnacle of your expression of individualism. Finally, just me and God. Rather, the prayer indicates that when we are praying to God, we take the people of God with us into that private place. Do you see that in the text? It's not my Father in heaven. It's our Father in heaven. So you look around this room, and and you are meant to daily go into a private place conscious of these people and of Christians across the world and aware that we are together in a family relationship with God. And that, that plural emphasis, it keeps going through the whole prayer. Our Father, hallowed be your name, and then give us this day our daily bread. So we're worried about everybody we know getting enough to eat. It's not just that I'm praying for my home renovations. I'm praying for the material provision of all God's people. So it turns out the most private act is the most congregational act that God calls us to. Faithful churchmanship, concepts that are utterly lost today, faithful church membership starts in so many ways when all the members of the church get alone to a simple quiet place, but with each other on their hearts. Concerned that our Father be hallowed in each of our hearts. Concerned that each of us get enough to eat that day. Concerned that each of us be forgiven. Forgive us our, you hear that? Our debts. And as we also have forgiven our debtors. So you, you know, you know as well as I do that ruptures emerge in the body bitternesses, lack of forgivenesses. You get alone. You don't gossip about it. You get alone. You talk to God about that. Lord, would you forgive all the people at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Would you help them to forgive others? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you're aware that the other people at Emmanuel have temptations, correct? Everyone's aware of this? Now you're saying yes, but I'll tell you what. Here's something pastors hear all the time. They hear the I'm the only one story. I'm the only one struggling in marriage. I'm the only one struggling in lust. I'm the only one struggling in singleness. And you're like, You think a lot of nice thoughts when you hear that. And you think, no, you're not. You're not the only one. There's no temptation except that which is common to man. Sometimes I think our I'm the only one is we like we like sort of being on the edge. I've got a little a little different temptations that no one else understands around here. Here's good news. A little humbling, but good news. You're very normal. Just unnoticeably normal except to God. And so we go into the prayer closet aware 
that we are children of God, He's our Father, each of us need His name more revered in our hearts. We go into our prayer closet aware that everybody needs to eat and asking that God would feed them and provide for them. We go into our prayer closet knowing that other Christians sin and they need a fresh experience of God's forgiveness. And that they, when they're sinned against, need help to forgive others. And we go into our prayer closet and we pray for other Christians who are facing temptation and need to be delivered from evil. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my own prayer life. And I hope I don't, I do not want to erode anyone's good habits. If you got a good habit that's going on in prayer and my own personal testimony messes with your good habit, you just delete this portion of sermon, download it, delete this part, throw it away, you don't need it. But if my testimony has a little bit of help for anyone, you can keep it. I love every radical discipline I've ever heard about prayer. I love them all. Every time I hear about someone who prays more than everyone else, I like it and I want to be that way. When I hear about people who have long prayer lists and they pray them all over and over, I think they're awesome and I want to be like them. And I fail miserably all the time. I am, I am an awesome two-day list prayer. I kill it every time. And, uh, I, and, and then it's downhill from there. I love radical resolves and I'm not good at sustaining them. I'm a sprinter who wants to be a marathon runner and it's not pretty, okay? And, but here's the thing. Now, if you're doing that, there's nothing wrong with that. That can be good. But if that's the bar you set from the Bible, here's some relief. It's just not in the Bible, not any of that. There's nobody carrying around long lists with everybody's name and getting through them every day. There's, there's nowhere where that's held up as the standard. It's just not there. You're not going to find chapter. You're not going to find verse. There's some value sometimes when we see a good example to follow that. That can be good. And so I would commend it to you in that way. But in terms of like, it's very important in prayer that we have biblical standards governing our mind because if you don't, you'll be crushed by guilt and nothing kills prayer faster than guilt. Oh, exciting. You can be alone with your guilt and you should do it every day. Doesn't work very well, does it? So here's what I found. There is a command in the scriptures that I gather with God's people. Okay? that I gather regularly with God's people. That command is there by example and command. Okay? It's there by example. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They were devoted. It took a lot for them to miss church. Okay? The New Testament church is not like, can't make it this week. That's not happening. Okay? Now, I mean, if it's something caustic, stay home. But... But generally, all of us could, could tend to, to ramp up our I can't go to church this Sunday quotient, to, to get over that. You can, over, you can do her a lot. You can go to church. Anyway, I won't get into the details. 
So they were devoted to the fellowship. Then in, Acts, in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, it says that we are to not neglect the gathering of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Okay? So we're, we're supposed to show up every week in fellowship, and we're supposed to show up every week and participate. Don't neglect it. Some people, since the dawn of church history, have been in the habit of missing too much church. Don't be like that. It's a bad habit. Be here every Sunday. Now here's what I find. Here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm going. What I find is that when I interact with the people of God every week, how radical was this? I showed up at church. Now it's really, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I kind of have to, but I want to, too. I like it. I like church. Okay? So I, I show up at church, and I'm going to tell you what happens in my soul every Sunday. I see and I interact with Christians for whom their reverence for God, their hallowing of God's name is low. They're overcome by anxiety. They're overcome by fear. They're overcome by lusts instead of love for God. Their hallowing of God's name is low. I interact with them every week. Maybe it's you this week. Maybe you'll see that in me. As I go on, Maybe I've been involved in a small group of Christians, or I'm talking to Christians in another setting. And guess what I find out? I find out physical needs that Christians have. That's what happens. You talk, you talk to Christians, and guess what happens? You find out they have physical needs. They have more month than money. Sometimes they have, they have different things that come into their lives. They have physical needs. I hope you, I hope you can start seeing where I'm going, because I'm going there, but just give me a minute to get there. I find out as I interact with Christians, this is real hard, okay? I'm at church talking to people, okay? I'm not at church sitting in my chair on my phone by myself. I'm at church, and I come early, and I stay late, and I talk to people, and I find out about places where Christians don't have great reverence for God. I find out places where they're in physical need. I find out places where they are experiencing guilt and a lack of forgiveness, I find out places where they are having a ruptured relationship with someone else and they need to forgive them. I find places where they are being tempted and I find out places where the evil one is trying to drag them down. And then I go to a private place where there's no one else around and I ask God to fix it. How's that for a doable prayer life? I can't tell if I'm getting a clue to you here. I find this relieving. I find this like, Lord, this is so, this burden is not heavy. This is all the burdens I get to roll over onto you. J.O. Frazier was a Chinese, uh, was, a, was an Englishman, missionary to China. Uh, second generation, China Inland Mission, if you follow that kind of thing. Uh, marvelous man of science, music, uh, took the gospel to the Lisu people, Lisu people. Actually, it's funny that we're talking about J.O. Frazier right now because he taught the Lisu people, uh, this tribal people, to sing in parts, which we're doing in Sunday school this summer. 
and the Lisu people became this incredible uh, musical people group uh, for who so many love Jesus. Anyway, uh, J.O. Frazier went to China, and, and the first round of converts that he won in China all failed. The whole thing failed. And uh, he was discouraged, and so what he did is he wrote a letter to his mom and the prayer meeting she had back home in England. And he said to them in this prayer letter, I don't know if this is totally accurate theologically or not, but this is, I mean, I like the heart of it. He, write, he wrote, I am writing, I am rolling the entire burden of the Lisu mission onto you. It's now your responsibility, mom's prayer group back in England. Every single thing I'm doing here in China, I'm rolling the entire responsibility onto you. And it was actually after he rolled the entire responsibility onto them that the Lisu people began to come to Christ in great numbers and the people were transformed. Now, I don't know about the theology of rolling the entire burden onto a prayer meeting in another country, but I'll say this. That's all the Lord's calling us to in the, in the Lord's prayer. I roll the entire burden for the advancement of your kingdom onto you. Here's what I've learned after 20-some years of pastoring. I can't get anyone to hallow God's name in their heart. And I've tried. I can say biblical words. I can chase people down. I can call them. I can text them. But I cannot put the fear of God's name in their heart. But he can. And I'm supposed to get alone on a daily basis and ask him to do it. I can't get the kingdom to advance one step. Uh, last night or yesterday, about 12 of us went down to the Pride Parade at the waterfront and just thousands of Louisvillians under every corporate banner imaginable, KFC, Brown Foreman, GE, just dancing and singing in utter perversion and debauchery to celebrate what's an abomination in God's sight. And I think, how do I overcome this? And the goal, the, the, you don't make a plan. You don't start with a plan. You start with, I can't. I can't. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's none righteous, no, not one. They're dead in transgressions and sins. But I can get alone where no one's watching on a daily basis and I can say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I know from reading my Bible and reading church history that God's changed the tide of churches and cultures before. Is this doable? Yeah, it's doable because it's all God's doing. Prayer is about focusing not on what you're doing in prayer, but it's about you focusing on what God can do in answer to your prayer. And it's basic. It's simple. If you're in there and it feels like leg day or it feels like rocket science, you're doing it wrong. His burden is easy. And his load is light. This brings me to my last point. God wants us to spend time every day alone focused on the fact that God is our Father. 
God wants you to spend a portion of every day you live alone thinking about this. God's my Father. Doesn't have to be a lot of words. You should take all his people with you into the closet in your heart. But what he wants you to think about every day of your life for the rest of your life is the fact that he is your father. How do I know that? Well, I read the Bible a lot this week, and there it was over and over, our father. Our father. Now, it's interesting. We spend a lot of time in our day thinking about how our fathers have shaped us, don't we? I know you do because I talk to you. I come to church every week and I talk to you. And you say these things. And I pray about them. And you can do that too. And then God will reward us. We think a lot of times thinking about how our Father has shaped us. And that's, that's right and good. That's not a bad thing to think about. Because the Bible actually tells us fathers have a deeply shaping effect. What, the, what a father gives you in childhood, you take into adulthood. The Bible says fathers can exalt, exasperate us. They can provoke us to anger. Uh, and many of us think about how our fathers shaped us by their absence. Many of you just had dads that weren't around. You saw them once a month, once a year, twice in a childhood. And I'm sure you've been exposed to statistics that say fatherless childs are more prone to obesity, suicidal thoughts, crime, depression, premarital sex, all kinds of things that we're more inclined to when dad's not around. We hear about those effects and we think about how our father shaped us. And we should think about how our father shaped us. Some of us feel, think about how our father shaped us by lovelessness. Again, that's wise. A child without love can have lasting effects. It can have lasting effects when you're not loved as a child. The proverb says the one of the things that makes an, the earth tremble in an unbearable way is an unloved woman when she gets an, a husband. There are some unloved women. They're going to come into a marriage and it's just going to be unbearable because of that lack of love in childhood. We think about abusive fathers. And how they gave us a sense that God is cruel, unloving, negligent. With some of us think about how we had silent fathers. They were there, but they weren't talking. They were watching the game. And what's happened in our souls is we've developed a self-reliance because there was no loving guidance for us. I'm just scratching the surface. I'm just scratching the surface. We could all talk all day. And some of you could tell stories of having great dads. Some, some of you could tell stories of, of great dads. And that's, that's wonderful. But, but here's, here's my concern. The focus on how our dads shaped us is not a bad thing to think about. And there can be lots of wisdom gleaned in that thinking. I'm just here to tell you, no matter what your dad was like, you can be shaped by the Heavenly Father. You're not condemned or doomed to anything because of what your dad was like. You're not, you're not condemned to repeat any mistakes. You're not condemned to, fo to follow any pattern. And, and talk about a strategy. 
I'll just command them to get alone once a day with me and think for a minute about how I'm their father. And day after day, year over year, decade after decade, it will have transformative effects in their lives. Are you with me? Now, who was your father? I didn't ask who was your father. Who is your father? Who is he? Well, let me tell you who he is. He is the one who adopted you. He chose you. Now, this is amazing. I have not had the privilege of adopting a child. Uh, all of our children came naturally, and, and we were lucky. They came, and we love them. And so that's great. But with adoptive children, you, you move into a child's life, usually who are in difficult circumstances, sometimes who have strikes against them, and in the case of God, you move into a child's life who was a total failure, dead in trespasses and sins, not the kind of kid you want to bring home. You want to talk about attachment issues? We all got attachment issues. And God the Father chooses to bring those children into his home. And then he says, I want you to get with me once a day at least and go, Blessed be the God, says Paul, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Beloved, if you have believed in Jesus, it's because before the foundation of the earth, God set your destiny to bring you to repentance and faith so that you could be his child. And now on a daily basis, he wants you to not neglect that truth, but to get alone with him and to speak to him and to say it out loud. In faith, my father. Your adoptive father is a great gift giver. He's a fantastic gift giver. Some of you grew up, never got a present once from your dad. Not your heavenly father. He is a fantastic gift giver. Every, James 1.17, good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Some of you had a dad, he was cold one minute, he was warm the next, he was angry one minute, he was calm as a cucumber the next, and you now, have Father, has no variation or shadow due to change, and he only gives good and perfect gifts. And of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his Creatures. What happens in your life, Emmanuel? If you just quiet everything else out in a private place on a daily basis and you just take one of these verses and you go, this is my father. What kind of anxieties begin to melt away? What kind of harshness, dads? begins to be tempered 
by the love and compassion that your heavenly Father shows you. You know, one of the best, you know, one of the best, one of the best things about the heavenly Father is he's kind of, this shirt, I'm sure this doesn't get the whole truth, but it gets some of the truth, and I'll say it. He's not expecting much. Because he knows where you come from. He's very aware. Listen to this, Psalm 103. Psalm 103 says this. I love this. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Some of you had dads who held your sins against you. They're bringing it up 20 years later. I remember when you were five. How God does this happen? Okay. Your, your heavenly father, as far as the east is from the west, your sins are gone. Every time of prayer is not a fresh lecture or condemnation time. Your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. As a father, this is the part I was getting at, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So you show up for prayer, and God says, there's my little adorable lump of dust. <laughs> Breathing these few precious moments while I give them life, and then they will return to dust. And your father is not standing over you with the weight of Moses' law that expected perfect obedience and there was condemnation. But your father is standing over you with compassion, delighting in imperfect obedience, anticipating you're going to need to ask him to forgive you every day, and, and ready to hear your prayers. No more condemnation. Amen. Some of us, all of us really, have fathers who can't always help us. You might have had a great dad. And guess what? Your great dad has limits. Sometimes they didn't have the money they wanted to help you. Sometimes they weren't in the right town to help you. Sometimes they got sick and died before the years came where you felt you needed their help the most. Eventually, your fathers will all grow sick and die, and whether the relationship's good or bad, it will be over. So every human father has limits. And when you experience those limits, it can be a breeding ground for your own anxieties, your own insecurities. Your heavenly father has no limits. Our father who are in heaven. Heaven's the capital of the universe. Heaven is where all the power is. Heaven is where everything that matters is decided and where all decisions that matter are executed. The Bible says the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Years ago, my mom and my stepdad went on a horseback riding trip with my stepdad's two kids, my stepbrother and sister. So mom, stepdad, my two step siblings. They went on this horsebacking trip 
into one of the least known but most glorious natural wonders in America. They went to see what's called the Great Wall, sometimes even called the Chinese Wall, in Montana. It's, it's day's ride back into the Bob Marshall Wilderness. You can look it up on Google later today. Not now, please. But anyway, you can look it up. And, 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 and you have to ride several days back on horseback riding to eventually get to this limestone wall that is 1,000 feet tall and runs for 12 miles in this pristine Montana wilderness. And so they came up on their horses up on the ridge, and finally they looked across this majestic vista. And my mom and my stepdad started to cry and just weep as they took in the glory and the majesty of what they were seeing. And the teenagers looked and they said, cool, and they turned their horses around. And what this prayer is asking when it prays that God our Father would be hallowed in our hearts is that we wouldn't just look at the fact that God is our Father and say cool and move on, but that a reverence, a sacredness, an awe, a a, a tear-filled wonder would come upon our hearts. And the assumption is you don't have this. This assumption is that you can lose this. That's why you have to keep praying. That's why you, you come and say, Lord, hallow your name. Make it sacred in my heart. I'm losing my grip on how awesome it is to have you as my father. I'm, I'm inundated with all the thoughts of my earthly father. I'm shaped by all the ways they shape me. But what I'm asking for is that you'd make me aware and in awe and, and, and reverent towards the fact that you are my heavenly father. That's all I got this morning. It's simple. Short. But it deals with the most heart-transforming issues that matter. So you don't need to be able to write an essay or to come up with freestyle poetry. You just need to get alone and you need to take the church with you on your heart. And I think the best way to be burdened by them is just by getting with them and having normal interactions. And then you take those burdens to the one who can provide, the one who cares, the one who forgives, the one who has compassion, and you ask him to do what only he can do. Can we put the Lord's Prayer up on the screen? We'll begin with our Father. Let's pray it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the accusations and the temptations of the devil that would keep us from prayer, that you would make it the habit of every Christian to get alone for a season and to speak to you the words you've given us so that we can see you do what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.